What's up, everybody? My name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition, and you are tuned in to Kinda Neat. Thank you guys for tuning in, as always. I'm sorry for the extended break. There's just been some scheduling issues, but it is what it is. First things first, follow me on Twitter, at It's Intuition. Follow my man, Ben Shim, behind the boards, making the shit sound buttery, at I Am Database, based with two S's. Follow us as a unit, at Kinda Neat. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash kind of neat and youtube.com slash that's kind of neat where you're going to see our guest today, Kamasi Washington and his bass player that he brought, Miles. He and Miles just kind of set up plugged in and i don't know you guys will just have to watch it was an amazing five minutes of just off the cuff musicality and i loved it remember to download that podcast app on your phone and search for kind of neat subscribe 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 if you're listening on a computer you're doing it wrong you should be doing it while you're driving in your car or running on a treadmill so over the weekend not this weekend but last weekend i watched this movie called still alice and man it fucking wrecked me i was so miserably depressed while watching it it is a movie about a woman who gets early onset alzheimer's and as some of you guys know that listen or a lot of you guys maybe i don't know my dad has alzheimer's he had early onset alzheimer's and he got it when he's 54 that's pretty much the age that she gets it in the movie And while the timeline of the movie was a little off, like her progression was really fast. Like it went in like a year or two years, she progressed to like farther, way farther than my dad has progressed in like six years. And I guess like everybody's progresses differently, you know, but regardless of like the erroneous timeline in my eyes, it was so sad and it really just put me in a dark place on an early on a Saturday afternoon. And I wish I would have just like waited until like a, you know, maybe a Sunday night to watch it or something. Cause it just was not good for my weekend. It made me freak out. Cause there's kind of this thing in the movie where right when they're discovering it, she's still pretty cognizant. And so they do uh, genetic testing on her and it turns out that it's like familial Alzheimer's. And I, and I, you know, I've done, I don't know. Maybe I haven't like done enough of my research on Alzheimer's to like, I think maybe I've remained kind of blissfully ignorant, perhaps like subconscious fear about it or just kind of a tendency to ignore problems. I I don't know why, but I've not. You would think that someone whose dad is going through that would have read a lot of, I guess, genetic information about it. I've read a lot of statistics and I've read a lot about trying to fundraise for it and stuff like that. But I've not really thought about the genetic questions or, or, or like, is this going to ha- I, 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 I frequently think, like, is this going to happen to me? But the movie paints a picture of, like, you can figure out if it's going to happen to you. Because in the movie, they're like, oh, yeah, it's familial. So all of your kids should get tested because all of them have a 50-50 chance of getting it uh, or of, ha- of having the gene that causes it. And then they go on to say, like, if they have that gene that causes it, it's a 100% chance that they're going to get Alzheimer's. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. If they have the genes, they're going to get it. So seeing that in this movie made me go, oh, fuck, like, holy shit, I need to figure this out then. So I immediately, like, call my mom in a tizzy and uh, really, like, blindsided her with with all the information I was giving her. And it was probably pretty unfair. And uh, I don't know. It was very emotional. I was like... Mom, I need you to call the neurologist as soon as you can, and I want to find out if they did the genetic test on dad and see if it was familial. Because here's the thing is that my mom's dad is healthy, uh, and she's in her 80s, 
and she's still all there. But his father died young, like his father died at only around 60 ish. And we haven't really kept in close contact. I haven't kept in close contact with his side of the family at all. I literally don't know anything familial about his dad. Like, I don't know if his dad had brothers or sisters. I don't know. I don't know if he has cousins. I don't know any of that stuff because that's the other thing is that there could be like a whole you know, side of my family that this is affecting that I just don't realize it because who knows, like his dad didn't live long enough for the symptoms to really kick in if he would have had it or not. So I start panicking about that kind of shit. And I'm telling her like, oh, I want to I want to get genetic tested because like, you know, this movie is saying that, you know, there's a 50 50 chance that I have it if it is. And then if I do have that gene, then it's a 100 percent chance. And then I'm thinking like, oh, man, I'm like about to be 34. Like we found out when my dad's 54. That means I, if fuck if I have this shit, I only got 20 good years left. Like for some reason, I was having this much of an existential crisis on a random Saturday fucking afternoon because of a movie. And so, yeah, I start yelling at her about that. Not yelling, but I, I mean, I definitely was like emotion. I there was I was risen to a level that I probably shouldn't have been and I was more upset than I needed to be and and she uh calls me back the next day and and after talking to the neurologist and was kind of like well look there's some flawed information you know that you've had and and like uh, they didn't do the genetic testing on dad because even when he was getting diagnosed he was already kind of like too far gone to get to have gotten genetic testing in an ethical manner because with genetic testing you have to have pre-genetic testing counseling i.e they need to like evaluate why you want to have your genetics tested and then you have to have post-genetic testing counseling as well because they want to know if you're okay with the information you found out because you know shit if somebody finds out like oh yeah there's a really good chance i'm gonna have alzheimer's or the you know then all of a sudden there's like a there's moral and ethical ambiguity and conundrums arise because hey maybe this person is gonna off themselves now or something like that and so the neurologist is asking my mom like i don't know why like why is your son freaking out about this all of a sudden and like why um is he so hell-bent on it right now and what does he want to do with this information there's a lot of ethical and moral things that we need to think about and he's like you know he basically is like look the information that he has is not exactly scientifically correct like even if he did the extremely expensive tests and found out that he does have this gene there's really only like even having that gene only means like a 10 percent chance that anything alzheimer's related will arise so it's not really a surefire thing like he thinks and it's not as clear cut as he thinks etc cetera, etc cetera. and then he of course also says like you know what does he want to do with this information and i try to explain to my mom like i want to know this information because if i can have like a looking glass into my future which maybe i don't know maybe you shouldn't have i'm not sure but if i could have a look into my future and i could know that like yeah maybe i only have 20 good years left i think my priorities would change a bit you know and i and i would stop definitely worrying about things that worry me now like and i i certainly wouldn't care about shit petty shit like a fucking 401k for retirement or you know and i wouldn't care about you know oh i want to fucking work hard and get rich i I wouldn't care so much about that stuff i would care more about i want to go see as much as i can see and experience as much as i can experience and kind of like you know everybody talks about live for the day and live for the moment but keep it a fucking hundred how many of you guys are living for the day and living for the moment because i can already tell you if you have a nine to five you're not 
You know what I mean? Like if you have a job, you're not living day to day. You're living to survive. Like we're all living to survive to a certain extent. And if I had some sort of glance into the future about that sort of thing, I think I would really try to concentrate on that. But also even bigger life decisions like marriage and kids would definitely have to be reconsidered in my eyes because – like I said, I'm about to be 34 and I'm already late in the game. Like I'm not married, et cetera, et cetera. I talked about that last episode. If I were to meet somebody, let's run through a hypothetical situation here. If I was to meet a gal fall, you know, in love, I'm a pretty tentative person about falling in love. So it would take me at least a good fucking two years of dating before I would consider engagement. Right. And so you got those two years, that's 36. Then all of a sudden it's a, it's organizing a wedding, which takes a good year or two. So then I'm 38, we get married. Maybe we have a kid. Now I'm 40 by the time I'm having the kid. And all of a sudden, it's like, maybe I only have a good 15 years left, and then I've got a 15-year-old dealing with a fucking, with a dad who has Alzheimer's in his in his mid-50s, and a wife taking care of me. Like, to me, that seems selfish. That's just me. Some people go, hey, man, that's life, and, like, you should experience it and, and live and love, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, I don't know if I did fall in love with somebody, if I would want them to have to see my debilitation and have to care for me and that's just me in my opinion and you know i talked to my brother about it and and we definitely have maybe you know he has more of a kind of like nah you're overthinking it just live your life attitude and and you know he's probably right so you know i don't know the the conversation with my mom and and the neurologist kind of like calmed me down but my point is if you're sitting at home on a saturday don't watch still alice it's too fucking sad and that's the whole point of my story i guess because that was all the crazy fucking emotional crisis and the thoughts that I had because of a movie about Alzheimer's. <sighs> oh, and, and in turn, I downloaded a video or I downloaded a game, an app on my phone that you guys should download if you're interested in these sorts of things. It's called Elevate. I love it. It's like a little brain game thing that you take every morning, and I feel like it's uh, making me sharper. And it's probably a placebo effect, but you never know. I think it's good to keep your brain active. When Actually, when my dad uh, first got diagnosed, the first thing I did was uh, – it was right around Father's Day. So I went and bought a Nintendo DS with brain games on it thinking like – Hey, this is going to help like keep him from debilitating is if I can get him to play this DS game every morning. And at that point, honestly, he was already too far gone to even really succeed in any of those games. So, yeah, sorry this intro is such a fucking downer. Let's get to the good stuff. Kamasi Washington is an artist that just put out a record on Brain Feeder, and it's called The Epic. Now, I pretend that I know the kids that listen to this show, the folks that listen to this show. I curate it the way that I do because I feel like you guys will like it. Like, that's that's what I try to do is I, I try to, like, uh, assess what I think your tastes are. And according to my curation so far it's it's kind of become a very hip-hop leaning show obviously with a few indie rock and soul musicians have been sprinkled in but this is the first time we've had a pure jazz artist on kamasi's a saxophonist he's a master of his craft he's just an amazing musician and he grew up around a bunch of amazing musicians and he put out a record on brain feeder that is a three-hour it, the record is called The Epic, and to be on the nose, it is epic. It's a three-hour journey through this man's uh, brain, I guess, and it ranges everywhere from deeply dark and dense and frenetic all the way to, like, 
summery and groovy and funky and danceable. It's not an easy listen. It's not going to be an easy listen for you guys. Like it's going to be challenging. And I think that's great. And I think that's beautiful. And I think it's beautiful when a record can challenge you. And if some of you guys are younger folks listening who maybe don't have any experience with jazz, I hope you hear this record and it makes you want to go back and discover other jazz musicians and and the classics. And I hope that you love the record. And if you're somebody that loves jazz already, I think you're going to love this record because it's beautifully put together and it's huge. It's massive in scope and it's massive in sound and concept. And, and it's just really great. And I was very nervous to interview him because my knowledge of jazz is pedestrian at best. But, you know, I, I remember the, fir- the first time I thought jazz was like really cool. I was like 16 and I had gone on a school trip to France and I was drinking vodka shots that had like uh, that they were putting concentrated cranberry juice in. And we were listening to John Coltrane and they said, oh, do you like the jazz? And I said, yeah, man, I fucking like this shit. And I didn't know what I was listening to. But at that moment, I was like, whoa, this shit is crazy and it sounds cool. And since then, I've gotten into some jazz. You know, I've got some Mingus records and Coltrane records, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know. So I I don't speak the language. So I was nervous to talk to him. But I'll tell you, this dude is a he's a warm spirit. He's a good dude. He's uh I think this conversation is enlightening and I think uh, he comes off very likable because he's a likable dude. And, you know, Ben and I were were nervous recording, like thinking about recording the jazz stuff and filming the video. We were nervous about that. And um, he and Miles made it such an easy process. And and yeah, I'm just grateful to have had him on the show. I'm really excited about this one. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Kamasi Washington. You've been doing a lot of these interviews now. This is like what probably like your fourth one all day already. Right? <laughs> How's that going? Oh man, it's cool. You know, I yeah. can't explain. You know, people people are, are loving the record and they want to they want to talk about it. They want to hear about it. So yeah, indeed. I'm happy. I'm happy. Is this kind of your first big shebang being in the front centerpiece? Yeah. How's that feeling? It feels good. Yeah. I mean, it feels good. I mean, it feels good to express yourself and then have people understand you. You know. Right. It's like you know, it's like it's it's, it's unnerving because you know it's like you're. Uh, like you're opening your spirit to people to see and like, you know, you know, you don't know how people are going to react. Right. I mean, so you just, you think, you, I think, it, I thought it was dope. I, I, I thought people would like it, but you just never know. And I mean, you showed your whole spirit because it is a, it is a three hour. I mean, like, yeah. I, I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but oh, it's literally an epic. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm sure that's like the most played out thing right now, but yeah, real talk. It's a fucking epic album, you, you know, no pun intended and not to be on the nose, but it's three hours of like total movement and wide range of emotions and just, you know, you could tell that you really put a lot into this. Yeah. As we've spoken about before, my jazz knowledge is is pedestrian at best. So most of the time that I'm listening, I'm enjoying and not quite understanding. So just first and foremost, like how, how does the how do you write these songs? Like how do these songs happen? Like, are you writing all the arrangements and everything, or is yeah, it a collaborative yeah. effort? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, in jazz, it's um, you, it's like uh, you, you create the uh, the topic, and that's what the tune is. You know, it's like we're gonna, uh, you know, like 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 you may maybe maybe you might prepare eight questions to talk to someone about, eight people to talk about. You know, but then you don't really know what they're gonna say. 
you know, so like I write these tunes um, and it's like the topic. It's like, okay, you know, this song is kind of saying this. And then when I give it to, to Ryan Porter to play, I don't know what he's going to say on it, you know? Um, so that, and I wanted to keep that like when, when I was doing, when I, when I was making this record. So like, uh, I don't know, some people might think it, it may, it sounds kind of through composed. Like, it, like I rolled it out from top to bottom, right? but I didn't really, you know, I, I, I left it very open for freedom. So like a lot of that was spontaneous. Most of it is spontaneous. Yeah. And, um, what I then did was write around all these spontaneous moments that happened to make it sound like this this really I guess I still did write you know some you tie 12 it all minutes together of music almost, yeah, yeah. yeah. And some of these songs but like it did what you hear in the band play was spontaneous and then what you heard with everything was kind of like I tied them together so it was it was pretty fun we, we, had, we had a uh, city release show on Monday yeah, I saw uh, footage of it. I'm ashamed that I wasn't there. It looked amazing. It looked packed, and it looked like, uh, I mean, it looked packed in the crowd, and it looked packed on the stage. Yeah. You said 35 musicians on stage with you? Yeah, it was 35 musicians on stage. And it was funny because like, we had to, that was the version where we were trying to force it, you know? And it was kind of, it was, and we didn't have to force it, but it was, it was like, um, that was through Composed. But it was, it was, it was amazing because, like, you know, Miguel I with Ferguson, he wasn't able to make it to, for the for the record, but for the for the for the live show, I knew I, I knew I needed him. Yeah. I needed someone to 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 direct the strings and choir to allow them to be free, like the band was, you know. And he did it, and, and it was it was amazing. It was another one of those moments in my life, like when this album, when I when I conceptualized what it was going to be in my head, I had you know a, a sound and a vision of what it was going to be in my head, and it actually came out better. And the same thing happened at the show. I was like, I had an idea of what it could be, and it ended up being even better than I imagined. How long of a preparation is it for a show like that? You know, people. We we did that show with two rehearsals, really one and a half, because the second rehearsal was broken because of some really? situations with the sound. So that was one and a half rehearsals worth of. Oh, Which is so crazy. I mean, like just watching you and Miles perform right now, it's almost like this. You know, and and like I said, we talked before about this, but you guys have been playing so long, not only together, but just playing music in general for so long. You guys almost, you definitely speak a different language to each other, and you're able to like almost communicate telepathically. Like watching you two perform with each other, you're there are just certain glances that that get shot, and then all of a sudden it's like this understanding. And I would imagine that even in a huge group of of such trained and talented musicians like that like that kind of second nature sixth sense intuitiveness kind of just probably breeds through yeah yeah it kind of, it's, it's 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 about trust mm -hmm. it only happens over time it's like we, we've been playing together for 20 years yeah 30 years some of us like you know me and ronald been playing together yeah that's what so it's like yeah i don't have any lack of confidence that like there's no place i can go that i don't think miles will be able to follow me right so what happens when you hear his live is that it seems like everything is so telepathic but what it really is is that I have confidence that they'll be able to hear what I'm doing and adjust to what they're adjust to what they're doing, and they have the same confidence in me. Right. So Miles will go anywhere while he's playing with me. He might flip the form, he might change the time. Ronald might change the tempo, mm -hmm. and he knows that I can adjust. You know, and I think a lot of, a lot of times we get hung up in our insecurities musically, and it, it, it stifles us from doing 
this is whatever you want to do. And music, I think the most exciting music is the music that's out of control, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just kind of let cut it go and just go with whatever you want it to be. You know, and, and you was, just kind of catch that Holy Ghost or something. Yeah, that happened. That man, that happened on Monday. Man, it was yeah. like a couple. Of, we, like we made up this one song and, and Miguel <laughs> brought in the strings from another song. Oh. that just worked on what we were doing. It was just like, oh man, this is. You know, and you can like, just feel that happening while you're performing, and it's just yeah, and just and, and just to have that confidence to do that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that trust and that confidence, because like you said, a lot of the guys that you've been playing with, you've been playing with literally your whole life at this point. Like uh, you grew up with with Ron, like you were just talking about. You guys, you said you knew him since you were two years old. So let's talk about like where are you from? I'm from LA, from LA, South Central LA, South Central Los Angeles. I, you know, I grew up in first. Eight years of my life on, on 74th and Figueroa. And what's that like growing up there? You know, it's, it's weird. It's like um, in hindsight, it was rough. Uh-huh. But when you're in it, it just is what it is. You yeah. Know? You know, so, you know, there was some definitely some, you know, some criminal activity happening around me. Yeah, and I got sucked into the into the to some of the status quo. Like I want to be a gangster, you know. Be well, and to at tag the time, it. you know, and at the time that we were kids growing up, that was the time where. Uh, you know, I'm from Alaska, and even the the gangster imagery made it up there. Even for, oh, you yeah. know, the South Central gangster uh, look and mentality was even huge to a fucking white kid that lived in the woods. So I can't imagine, you know, the pressure that you must have felt growing up in that area at that time. Yeah, it's, it's a pressure. It's, an ex- it's almost like an expectation, and right. like people don't realize that, like you know, you put that expectation on kids, and they. They start to believe it. And so then, you know, for me, what happened is it kind of happened in two fronts uh, or three fronts, really. You know, right around, you know, sixth grade, maybe a little earlier, maybe fifth grade, mm-hmm. this guy named, you know, Brother Mark came to my school and just decided he was going to teach a bunch of young brothers, like, their their uh, their history mm-hmm. and who they really are and and what they've been through and why why their circumstances are the way they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that opened my mind. He gave me... Malcolm X's autobiography and, and, and Frederick Douglass's autobiography and all these things, you know, they it opened my mind. At the same time, you know, I always played music, but I wasn't really serious about it. But, like, after around that same time, I really discovered jazz. Uh-huh. And that, that opened my mind big time. Uh-huh. So my, my mind was being opened by all these things. And then, you know, I ended up going to this other school where, like, it was like a blue ribbon school where everybody wanted to go to Harvard or Yale. Like nobody wanted to be a gangster. It was uh-huh. like, and those three things. It was like you know, I can't even like pretend like you know I had. It was something in me that caused me to rise myself up. But it was like you know, it was, it was I had help. You had these three eye opening opportunities that that added up to it. Yeah. What did your folks do as you were growing up? I, and, and that's crazy. My parents were great. My parents are like both college educated like teachers, and like, yeah. they, they had been trying to teach me that same thing. But it's 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 a, it's a social pressure that like when you're in it, you know, when you're a kid, you're impressionable. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, what you see on the news. My, my parents were great. Mm-hmm. Both of my parents are like educated. You know, oh, do you have generations in LA? Yeah. How many generations? Well, I see. Um, well, I, I guess my grand, but none of my grandparents are from LA. Yeah, yeah. So my my, my grandmother's from Kansas, so my okay. dad's side, and um, my grandfather, on my dad's side, is from Louisiana. Uh-huh. My well, that's not true. My grand, my mother's mother is from LA. Okay. I just watched a documentary about South Central. Did you, have you seen this documentary about uh, the Grim Sleeper? 
No, I haven't seen that. Wow. Have you heard, you know who the Grim Sleeper is though? No. They they only caught him like 4 years ago. He was a a serial killer in South Central, like right in that area. But the thing is is that the police kind of just like let him run rampant cuz he was only killing hoes. So he was only killing like prostitutes and crackheads basically and wow. he got he they they're saying that maybe he murdered like upwards of 100 people, right? Wow. So he finally got caught in 2010. But that's all it sounds so fucking horrible. But the point is, uh, in that documentary, I learned that back in the fifties, there was actually a booming like auto industry. And so there was actually like work and it was a pretty, uh, like, uh, oh, yeah. it was a good, it was like a good neighborhood to live in. Yeah. And that's why, yeah. that's why like people from South central LA had this Southern accent because it was people from the South, black people from the South migrating, migrated to California because yeah. of the auto industry and they had great jobs. Yeah. And then, and so some of the houses in South central have been handed down for like three generations now. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and the, the difficult thing that happened is that, that, you know, you had, you had, you had all these people who had jobs, not careers that, you know, so there was this culture of a lack of education, but you need education. You can still get a job and you, you can buy a house and, and support your kids. And then when and the, then the, the audio those, industry folds, those, yeah, it folds and those pe those people, their children, you know, they didn't have that same opportunity. Mm -hmm. There's no opportunities for jobs. They just have a house there now. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then you introduce the drugs and yeah. then, you know. Yeah. Obviously, like in the 80s, the crack epidemic hits and then it's just, yeah, the neighborhood the goes to The instruments are taken from the schools and leaders are assassinated and, you know, it's a whole, yeah. a whole snowball effect of things. Where'd your folks go to school at? My dad went to Pepperdine, to oh, Pe wow. Pepperdine and yeah. my mom went to Brown. Wow. And um, how did they meet? In college? Uh, how did my parents oh, meet? No, probably not in college. Those are like opposite sides of the country. I, I mean, they're, they're not together. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, but, no, it's okay. Uh, uh, my, my parents met, um, I think my I think my dad, my, my, my aunt, Roseanne, was going on a date with one of my dad's friends. And that, you know, hooked, they hooked them up. And my mom's a flute player. My dad, you know, saxophone player. So, so that just runs in your blood. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they link up. Are you the oldest child? No, I'm not. I'm third. You're the third. So are you the last? Um, no. It's, there's there's uh, how many there's, of you guys? There's uh, seven of us. Seven. Yeah. Wow. And so you're the third out of seven. Yeah, yeah. How's that with uh, a lot of brothers and sisters growing up? It's great. You know, I mean, I mean, I, we're, we're, our ages are really crazy. So it's you know, I really grew up with two brothers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so it, it was cool. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know. It's different, you know, we, we fought and stuff. Is it a struggle for attention when there's that many kids in the house? No, nah, I've never been an attention stars person. Yeah. You know, I don't need a lot of attention. You know, yeah. I kind of, I kind of, you know, I'm Aquarius, so I, I right. just go dream off of my own, right, right. <laughs> go in my own little world for a little while. I, I, I've always been like that, so right. I, I never really tripped off. I, I, never, I didn't have the middle child syndrome, you know. Right, right. Did you like school as a kid? Did it come to you? Yeah, easy? yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I, I was like, you know. I was a kind of a nerd, you know, like, yeah. um, like my brother, everyone thought my brother was going to be the musician. Like I was like a little science nerd. Like I, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I went to like math camp and stuff like that. Really? Like, that's how I ended up going to laces. Cause I like, I scored really high on the CTBS test and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, like even going to college, like it was funny when I applied to USC mm -hmm. and uh, I got accepted as a physics major and denied as a music major. No shit. <laughs> it was, and my mom was my mom was a science teacher. She was like, "It's a science, see." You're supposed wow. To be. <laughs> Damn. So you, you you're a, you we're gonna be a physics major, maybe. Yeah, I was really in, I was really into it. You know, I, was, I took like you know AP calculus and you know yeah, yeah. chemistry and physics and all. Yeah, I was I was I was deep into it.
Yeah. And I still love it. I still I still really like science. I still read up a lot. And I still, yeah, you I'm know. sure you seem like a lifelong learner, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you seem constantly curious, too. I don't know you that well, but I just the impression that I get is like, like you're probably curious about very many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. love to learn. So, yeah, as a kid then, so are you curious you start reading young and kind of like maybe disappear into your own world a little bit? Yeah. I started reading young. I, started, I was, you know, I mean, I mean, <clears throat> when I was young, really... Um, Math and science was my thing, and then you know when I got a little older, I got into history, and then when I got into, really into history, that that kind of stuck, you know. I'm, I'm I'm really into history. I'm really into you know. Yeah. Because it, it it gives you insight into the world, you know, like and even musically, you know. Yeah. What would you guys do in the neighborhood as a kid uh, to entertain yourself, like before Street Fighter? Street Fighter. Oh yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. So you're a video game dude. Huh? Oh yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. remember? Like, okay, so you and I are like exactly the same age, almost a few months apart. So did you? I mean, do you remember like your first time seeing a fucking Nintendo? Oh yeah, yeah. Where was it? Oh yeah, um, my friend, my friend Jason, Jason Coleman had one Yo, across you, the street. You want to know what's crazy? My friend Jason was the fi- he. Jason Dion was the kid who had every nintendo game like his parents wow. they spoiled him and they, they had every like, like they must have had like 80 nintendo games it was crazy oh yeah and that was like my dude for video games too <laughs> so jason you yeah. go over to his house and you see it the yeah. first time yeah. yeah yeah did your parents get you one pretty immediately after that or no nah you know i mean um we had a sega um but like i, I was more of an arcade kid you know so were there a lot of arcades in the area Nah, but there was there was one in in in, in uh in in uh Delamo. We used oh, to go yeah, over there. Delamo. Yeah. And then we used to go to one in uh in Marina Del Rey. Mm-hmm. And how did you guys get there? Just on the bus? On the bus, ride our bikes. So maybe I, it, it trips me out the way people are with their kids these days because yeah. we used to like ride our bikes. Yeah, I mean, we, I, dude, all, we used to mile. Yeah, we used to mob. And then back in the day, they had, they had the video games in every Seven Eleven, every liquor store. So we'd be oh, in yeah, there just true. playing Double Dragon, like the Neo Geos, and shit. Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. true. So you just be putting your quarter up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go in there with with a, with a, with a dollar twenty five and stay all day. Try to make it. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's tight. Yeah, my first system was an Atari. Like we, we, I, the first video game I saw was Super Mario Bros. I feel like in in somebody's house. But then and I told my folks like, "Oh man, you got to get a Nintendo," and they said. Here we got you this Atari because it was on sale. Because Atari was about to like go out of business and shit, you know. Yeah, I remember when Super Nintendo came out, we lost our minds. Oh man, that was like you never seen something like that. Nah, like it's crazy to me that like Super Nintendo, we used to, that was like the best graphics. It was so oh crazy. man, yeah, and so then, crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something that like always intrigued me about Los Angeles, even even back home, was like when the riots hit. Yeah, because I feel like I was. From my perspective, I was just getting to that age where, like, I was starting to kind of understand things going on in the world and, like, starting to actually, like, like the news seemed, like, important all of a sudden. And, and right when that was happening, I remember two things were happening. Ross Perot was running for president, and then the riots broke out. And I went, what is this? Because – I don't know. I was from a pretty diverse school and everyone seemed to get along and I didn't really understand this whole concept of fucking prevalent racism and 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 class economics and police brutality. It, it just yeah, it seems so crazy. So what was it like living through that in this area? Man, it sucked. I mean, like, um, you know, like I, I, I've had cops, you know, handcuff me. I was a little kid. My, my brother got his car. He's 17 years old. Uh-huh. Me, him and his friend are driving and. You know, cops pull us over on the freeway, handcuff us, leave us laying stomach on, you know, on a hot pavement for no reason. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I have friends that, you know, you know, it's it's like they just it was it was a very it's it's inhumane and 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 
after a while, it starts to wear on you, you know, and, and, you, and you're, you're just sucking it in and you're just holding it in. And then one day you pop and you go crazy and, mm-hmm. and then everyone points their finger at you and you go like, well, <laughs> you know, you haven't had this, per- this person prodding you for the last, for your whole life. So like, yeah, it's easy for you to say like, oh, if that situation happened to me, I wouldn't have wigged out like way, that but it's like well yeah what 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 but what, what if that was happening for for your whole life right every day of your life you felt this that's what really bugs me about what's going on in baltimore well what's going on everywhere honestly because it's it it really feels like the early 90s again uh in that like you know gangster raps making a comeback and then there's all this there's all this racial unrest going on and there's all this police brutality and now with the dawn of the democratization of cameras, like everyone having a camera on them at all times with their phone, it's like it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until something changes. But but I, I hate to see on my social media feeds and et cetera, et cetera, or even in the news of people going like particularly white people going like, oh, this violence doesn't make any sense and destroying your city is counterproductive and blah, 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 blah. Because people don't realize, like, or, or you know, like, I feel like people forget to step into someone else's shoes and go, "I've never, I've never felt that way," or "I've never, no one's ever fucking demeaned me in that in that sense for an my entire life." You know what I mean? So yeah, and it's misplaced energy. It's like, um, you know, if if imagine yourself, you know, if if you're, you know, you're in a room and someone is constantly, you know, you know banging a, a a hammer against a wall mm-hmm. right and then the wall falls and mm-hmm. then you get mad at the wall because it failed mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you'd be like no of course i'm not mad at the wall because it failed i mean it sucks that the wall failed mm-hmm. and it, like maybe it hurts someone some of that when it failed but like it's the guy that's been beating this wall with a hammer right that, that caused that, that the wall to fall that. and if he wasn't beating it with the hammer it wouldn't have failed so it's like i i i, I don't really understand that yeah. mentality i saw a poignant statement about it where somebody was like it's like if you don't understand where riders and looters are come from or coming from like perhaps you've never been mad enough to just like punch a hole in the wall you know what i mean it doesn't make any sense to punch a hole in the wall but sometimes you got to fucking let the anger out you know what i mean and i feel like history is just so cyclical right now that it's like it's crazy to be watching all this as an adult when i watched it as an 11 year old you know yeah and to me i mean there's there's a, there's a degree of humanity that like that we can't really stay where we are it's like a, we're like a we're like a like a forty year old kid that's living at home. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like uh, it's like we need to grow up as a species. You know, it's like uh, in our the, the materialist way that we we live our lives. Um, even that, you know, I mean, it's like you, you, so. Then people, you know, they judge about all they and have, you know what what is what is still on the big screen TV have to do with you know f- you know feeling you know anger towards racial pr- profiling it's mm-hmm. like well w- what that is is that you're these images of, of stuff and like you know your whole when you don't have anything it's almost like you you might think that that's going to make that's going to you're going to have something and be happy maybe i don't well, know well there's energy towards your the assessment of your of your self-worth yeah. is based off the possessions you have yeah absolutely and if you don't have these possessions you're you're not worth much like right. if you can't buy a car then that that affects your self-worth mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so it's like so you got those, all those factors so now i've blown up and it's like you know what I'm going. I want to. I want to feel good about myself. You you've done this to make me feel bad about myself. So I want to go feel good about myself. So how do I make myself feel good? About, how do I think what I think is going to make me feel good about myself? Mm-hmm. Is what is what is 
perpetuated to, to me is to go get stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it doesn't make you feel better, mm-hmm. doesn't make you happy, but you know, so like, and until we get out of that mentality, I mean, people live their whole lives to get stuff, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, it's like, damn, that's like a waste of a life, man. Like, it if really you didn't, is. you didn't have a purpose of something you wanted to do, you right. just wanted to get stuff, right. you know. And it's like, so many people, rich and poor, live their lives for that, and I, I think a lot of humanity's problems are kind of based off that, like that the people don't have a purpose to their lives, and like when you meet people who have a purpose to their lives, so many of those problems that we see. They they fade away, they fall to the wayside, and, that, and, and, and like those these communities of people who yeah you know all these people around you have a purpose for their lives. It's almost like hard to imagine being one of those people who doesn't. And mm-hmm. but it's like man, well, man, you know you don't have to really have to realize that like the majority of society doesn't have a purpose for their life, you know? right? And it's because they have been somehow told that. It's about your your worth and, and and your accomplishments in life are measured in your possessions. And this, I mean, personally, I don't. I mean, I don't. You know, it's gonna be you know a different kind of kind of conversation. But it's like there's no real such thing as ownership. You know, like That's how do you true. own something? That's true. Because and most of the time, every big thing that you have, someone else owns it because you're paying it off. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like how do you own anything? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, it's just an idea. You know, and to, to base your whole existence off that idea of owning something. Did you develop that idea early on of kind of like, I would imagine. Uh, Having a lot of brothers and sisters. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I had no toys that were mine. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, even beyond that, like, I feel like you're someone, and I could be completely projecting this, but someone who would maybe sacrifice what most people would consider like a lavish life. You would sacrifice that just to be happy making music, probably, I would imagine, right? Yeah, because that's what makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. People often don't understand that, like, a choice to kind of like, hey, you might think that I'm broke, but I but I can be happy with that because I'm here doing what I love. You know what I mean? Yeah, because my, my life isn't, my, my my worth isn't isn't measured by my, by my possessions. It's like my worth is fine by by me yeah and that's it yeah you know no one defines my worth but me by me how i define it you know so it's funny because i read something um that basically as far as collecting stuff goes or like rich versus poor you know they've done studies about happiness levels between like homeless people and the ultra rich oh yeah and the funny thing is is that the ultra rich are no happier than the homeless and the homeless are just as happy as the ultra rich because what happens with the human, just the human spirit tends to adapt to whatever it is. So like if you're a generally happy person, you're going to be like that if you're homeless, you know what I mean? Because you're going to adapt to your surroundings and that's how you're going to live and that's going to be your life and you're going to figure out how to make yourself happy with in those fleeting moments with what your life is and it's the same if you're ultra rich you know what i mean yeah and people don't realize that like you know one of the key 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 ingredients of happiness is desire yeah passion and when you have everything how do you desire anything right right so like the reality is actually that as as you you know you say someone is rich you say okay they they, the the notion is that you have everything when when you have when you have a hundred cars you know, like me or you, if someone walked up right now and gave me a Chrysler 300, I'd be like, happy. Like, yo, wow, thanks, man. But if I have 100 cars, a Chrysler 300 can't make Doesn't me happy. Make, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, so when when, when when you when you can't eat, you know, then a, a slice of bread will make you happy. Right. There's that literal hunger, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, so like happiness to me is always like, it's like, it's like the, 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 the management of, of, of knowing what you want and... 
appreciating what you have. Yeah. And so, like, the more you have, it's actually the harder it is to appreciate it and the harder it is for you to figure out what you want. Yeah. I mean, like, people mistake happiness. Like, happiness and suffering can coexist. You know, you can suffer and be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not not to promote suffering. I don't, right. it's, 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 but it's just, you know, and, and people, comfort and unhappiness can also coexist. They, yeah. They're not. They're not like comfort and happiness that aren't, aren't aren't necessarily intertwined like right, that. To right. Me. Right. People think they are. But they're not. I mean, so, I I've learned in looking back at my life that sometimes the times when I'm most uncomfortable, I'm actually the happiest because it's like you have that literal hunger to like work your way out of it, and all of a sudden you kind of maybe find other passions. Yeah. You know what I mean? That can help you get out of that situation. Yeah, well, you have desire. Yeah, desire. You know, because, like, when your desires are met, that's when you have those brief moments of happiness. It's yeah. like when you, you know, when you get a possession, it's only that moment when you get it. Oh, when as your soon desire as you have it, you're, is, you're fucking... Yeah, when your desire is fulfilled, yeah. you get a moment of happiness, mm-hmm. you know? And that's why, like, to me, like, if you base your life off what you want to do, mm-hmm. see, with music, it's like endless happiness because, mm-hmm. like, I'm never going to have it. Mm-hmm. I'll, there'll always be something for me to desire, you know what I mean? So I can never, like, I'll never be able to say, like, you know, even though, like, this album to me is like, wow, I actually made something I'm really proud of that's really beautiful to me. But it's not over. But, you know, and in a sense, is this your first record you put out? How many records have you put out? This is the first record I've really put out to the public, like, where everybody can have yeah, it, you know? Yeah, yeah, i put out a bunch of records, and what happens is that first week that you put it out, there's a bit of elation, and it's a kind of, uh, it's a great feeling, but realistically like what what you're saying at the way that i would apply it to myself is like oh i feel like i'm not done and so therefore the record release actually feels kind of anticlimactic because now it's like okay it's back to like the drawing boards and like let's do it again you know what i mean exactly it, you know you can't sit and kind of celebrate it no nah, so. nah. and it's like you know I mean, i've been writing music you know constantly since the record's been done you know yeah. it's like it's it's um you know I, I enjoy the the, the I, I'm happy that it, you know because like like I said like like my life has changed by music you know uh-huh. like and I feel like music is powerful like that and so it makes me happy like that people that it, it's speaking to people yeah because you know? I know I know how powerful music can be and it's like I, you know I, I I poured my soul into something and I, I put it out there and it's like just like people before me have done mm-hmm. and. And, you know, and like you know, Art Blakey probably didn't. He probably he definitely didn't know what he did for me, but he did. Like when he when he made like someone in love that record, it changed my life. You know what I mean? And then, you know, so I make this record, and it's like okay, now it's out there. You know, it's there. It's there. For, it's there for people to. You know, that's, that's the same thing. Well, possession. the interesting thing about your record in particular is due to your associations i think like particularly with the brain feeder label uh with dudes like thundercat dudes like Flylo, like that association you're going to be a lot of people's kind of intro to pure jazz music because they've listened to a lot of fusion jazz and like future jazz shit and electronic i mean i would say like Flylo's like his music is like you know it, it's an extension of what jazz uh, uh, uh it's it's influenced by jazz but like this is a, a pure jazz record, you know what I mean? And, and it might be the first one that a lot of people hear for a new generation. And I think that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, and, and it's like, to me, it's like the, the cool thing about that is that it's going to open their minds to so many different things. Because there's so much cool music out there that, exactly. that, that maybe, exactly. maybe have been, that, that, that could, you, know, you don't know the effect that a music can have on someone. You know what I mean? Like sometimes, you know, people, 
they take it for granted. And it's like, man, like, you know, like put that music out because it might it might save somebody's life. Yeah, there you go. You know, you never know. You never know what people are going through. And like, yeah. if it saves one person's life, well, man, it's worth it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, so it's, um, yeah, I look at that. I look at that. I look at like what Kendrick Lamar's record did. It, it, yeah. It's opening people's minds. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like I feel like kind of like his record opened people's minds to so much music. Yeah. And like if my record can do something like that too, it's like, oh man, you know, and that's 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 really what you want from your record. It's like you want to ha- have it be like a healing thing, like it helps people. It's 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 not just I, I didn't at least for me, I, you know, I didn't make it just to like get a pat on the back. It's like I made it because so it could do something, and it's like yeah. I, I feel like it is doing that. Like I, I hear people talking, and it's like I can tell. Like some people, you know, that just some of the comments they say is like, oh. <laughs> You're gonna go. You're gonna go now. I, I remember being at the stage of the of, of the journey journey you're about to go yeah. through. Like I like I'm almost jealous because it's like, oh wow, you're gonna get to go hear a love supreme for the first time. Right. <laughs> you're gonna go get to hear transitions for the first time. You're gonna go hit the gigolo for the first time. You're gonna go hit get to hear bitches brew and you know, you know, kind of blue and all these records that I'm like, oh man, that's dope. Because I remember how happy. Those records made me, and I'm like, man, you know, once you've heard them a thousand times, like I have, it's like I still love them, but I I can see that. Oh wow, you you get to get you get to start that journey now. Oh cool, wow, that's awesome. I've just always loved rap music for that because I felt like it was such an educational tool. Because when you hear a sample and then and then you accidentally hear the source of the sample, you're like, all of a sudden you have dozens of more like records to find out about you know what i mean yeah just it's like so many different quest, maybe like maybe like joe henderson you know what i mean it's like yeah. and that yes that's yeah. that's the power of music i mean it's it's a communication thing yeah. music is music is like it's it's like it's a human that's why i say it's everybody has music in them because yeah. it's how we communicate emotion you know and it's like those emotions and that's how we connect with each other on an emotional level to me it's through music you know what i mean it's like you know um when when and, and and every that's why everyone can relate to like that's why you, you can go to some, you go to a place where you don't understand the culture you don't understand the language you might even like the food yeah. but they can play some music and you go ooh yeah you know what I mean you go to Brazil and hear some records and you hear you know it's like man I can't believe I've never heard this before and it's like well and that's an interesting thing too because uh, when you travel and you hear the music and you hear it in its context like if you hear Brazilian music and you're in Brazil and, and all of a sudden it starts to make so much more sense I feel like. You can feel that with your music just because it feels like L.A. to me. Like, it feels like Lamar Park. It feels like, you know what I mean? And particularly, like, the work that you guys did on the Kendrick record. Like, that record, even for people that don't get it, like, that's such a portrait of Los Angeles. Because you got the jazz. You got the G-Funk. You got the funk. You got, like, the the golden oldies feel. Like, you know, like, oh, man, I don't know. What was the process of working on that like? Is that a boring question? Have you been asked that a million times? No, that's all good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. um, it was amazing. I mean, I, I, um, I was working on Terrace Martin's record. Yeah. He has a record called uh, The Velvet, Portrait, Velvet Portraits is coming out. Mm-hmm. And I played him the epic. And so he, um, I let him change the guard and he heard the strings. And he was like, oh, snap, I got something I need you to work on. So he called me in a couple a couple of weeks later. And um, I was originally supposed to come in there to, um, to work on that final skit that Kendrick does with, with, Tupac. with Tupac. Spoiler alert. 
<laughs> my bad. Well, yeah, no, no, I'm kidding. Now, yeah, you, yeah, you got, if you haven't heard the record at this point, you're stupid. But, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. So um, to get the scope of what that really meant, Cherish, yeah. um, uh, uh, Soundwave, and Kendrick wanted me to hear the whole album. Uh-huh. So every time they play the whole album, they pick another song. Like, oh, yeah, you should do something on that song, too. Uh, yeah. And, oh, you should do something on that song as well. You know, so, so then... You know, they, the security was tight, so they, they I couldn't actually take the music home. Right. I had to write there. I had yeah. to, like, you know, I had a little, little, I got old school, bought my little manuscript paper and, like, sat there and wrote at the studio. Yeah. And, like, Kendrick would be sitting on the couch, just chilling, watching, you know what I mean? Because he's like, he's, like, he's like me. He's, like, a really, really curious guy. So he was just, like, curious to see what the process was to, like, take music from my head, put it down on paper, what? spread it out to, to 12 people, and then have it turn into music again well and as a as a music lover without much uh understanding i I don't have any i can't read music anymore and i don't have any understanding of instruments but to watch what you guys do it really is it's something that you just you want to watch i don't know i I don't know how to explain it but i could picture myself sitting on the couch watching you guys doing that and being so fucking intrigued and wanting to ask a million questions because like it just seems like another part of the brain that most people don't have access to or something yeah i mean i mean yeah that's that's the difference i mean like i said music is in everyone and like absolutely people think that it comes from a person but it doesn't you know we're all any musician who's who's creates music whether they can write it down or not it comes from like the spiritual place and like you you kind of like i'm sure you make music so you know like like when you're trying to make something it's like you're reaching in the dark and you're just trying to find and then when it comes to you it comes to you like a at least for me it comes to me like in this rush yeah and i'm like whoa what's that yeah so like the, so then you know you take this music from this place and i don't know where it comes from and then you put it in yourself and then you what depending on the abilities you have you can put pieces of yourself in it and then you can with depending on the abilities you have you can take it out you know and it's like that's where like you know like the practicing and the studying and the you know the cultivation of your abilities it's like the more you have of that the more of that thing that special thing that comes from that special place the more of it you can actually get out Absolutely. Let's talk. Uh, I want to talk about that kind of your the the study and the journey and the training because this isn't um, some like casual thing like oh I happen to know how to play the saxophone like this is your life and and you've kind of been you've been training yourself from a young age and I asked you earlier like do you as a musician does the instrument pick you or did you pick the instrument and and you definitively said no nah, the instrument picks you oh yeah for me I, I, I started playing music when I was two yeah uh, I started on drums then I went to piano and then I was playing clarinet for a while uh-huh and um, and you got a little taste of that woodwind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, well, my dad's a saxophone player. He actually wouldn't let me play saxophone at first because he, he, you know, back in the because he said it was too sexy. He said I don't want you to go through all this sexy that I had. You know, well, saxophone players, you know, in, in, in you know, in the past, you know, you, if you were a saxophone player, you had to be a doubler, meaning you had to play saxophone and at least flute and clarinet, if not flute, clarinet, oboe, and bassoon. Oh. And of the, all those woodwind instruments, the saxophone is the easiest one. But everyone wants to play saxophone, so he was absolutely. Like, when you first start band, I feel. Like that's the one that everyone's like, oh, let me get a saxophone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was like, you, you know, if you can't play clarinet, you can't play saxophone. He, he actually told me they were the same thing. Yeah. So I didn't even know. But I kind of knew because I was like, oh, wait, wait, there's no holes in your keys. Yeah. <laughs> like, there right, are no right, one, you know. Right. So one day he left his saxophone out and I just picked it up and I played it. Uh-huh. 
And it was like instant. Like I played my favorite song. Like I didn't even know what the notes were. And I could just instantly play this. There's this Wayne Shorter song called Sleeping Natural Sleep On. And I just played it like very first time I ever played saxophone. And right there, it just like left turn. I want to be a musician. You know, I mean, I'd already gotten into art like I'd already gotten into these. I'd already gotten into jazz, but I couldn't really play it on clarinet. And when I got when I got the saxophone, you know, had I, had I stayed on clarinet, maybe I wouldn't have been a musician because uh-huh. just that instrument never it didn't speak to my soul. It didn't connect. I didn't connect with it. So just the first time you pick it up, the, the energy just channels itself through you. Saxophone. The first time I picked the saxophone up, my whole my whole connection to music changed. And so you're instantly taken with it. And are you in band in school at that point already? Yeah, uh, yeah, I switched. I switched in school. You know, yeah. I, was, I was playing clarinet in school. I switched over to, to saxophone. And is it is it clear from like jump that you're kind of prodigious and and perhaps advancing faster than people in your in in your class or at your in your age group? Yeah. Or were you around a lot of people that were like just on that same wavelength? Well, I mean, like it was yeah, it was fast because you know I went from like a casual musician not really playing much at all, and and then within six months I'm like. I switched schools. I went to this music. I went to Hamilton. Yeah, let's talk about Hamilton a little bit. Yeah, so Hamilton is a, is a pretty prestigious uh, music. We've had a lot of Hamilton guests on Baths, uh, this girl Raquel Rodriguez. Um, I, I mean, I feel like there is such uh, a, an expansive uh, or such an expansive talent in LA that went to Hamilton. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, think about this. I mean, it's, it's it's probably the most prestigious music music academy in LA. Yeah, you have to and, like try out to get in and everything, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, so first off, yeah. I'm, when I tried out to get into Hamilton, I had been playing saxophone for like six months. Oh, really? And I was like, and I got into jazz band. Yeah. You know, so people were kind of waking out like, you've been playing saxophone for six months and you're in jazz band? That's crazy. Yeah. And then, you know, a year after that, I was in A band. Uh-huh. So I was like the, in the top band at Hamilton, you know. so, uh-huh. But the real the real change for me happened when I went. So I was at Hamilton and Hamilton was really good. It was really, it was really, it was very. Were you guys still living off Figueroa at that point or did you No, move? no. I, uh, my, my parents got divorced and so my mom lived. You know where the sixties are? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, like Slauson and Slauson and Wooden Place. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, and, and and my dad lived in Inglewood. Uh huh. Um, so you stayed with mom most of the time, though. I stayed with both. It, it, it was one week with one, one week with the other. So it, I went back and forth. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I had both my parents in my life, and they're both really dope. I don't know why I was tripping. Right. <laughs> I, I didn't. Have, I didn't have an excuse, really. Uh-huh. Um, but. My life musically really changed when I, I started going to this band called the Motor School Jazz Man. You know, like, like I grew up around and, and, and Steven, but like we kind of felt like contact for a while. And uh, Reggie Andrews start he had his band called the Motor School Jazz Band, where basically, you know, I mean, like there was a we talked about social issues, like you know, there was an obvious um, lack of funding. And lack of resources in the inner city in their schools. Yeah. In 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 the sixties, I guess, when the management program started, and so there was a push to to do something about that. And what was done, which is is controversial, was instead of fixing the schools, they they basically said, okay, we'll take your brightest, smartest, most talented kids, and we'll bust them out to other schools right. where there are resources. Right. And so I was one of those kids that got busted away. And there was a lot of really talented musicians that lived in the South Central and in that area and on, you know, on the east side in Watts and Compton. But, we, but a lot of us were bust out. How long is your bus ride every morning? 30 minutes. That, oh, not like bad. You know what I mean? But it was like... Does getting bust out, does it help you in the neighborhood or make you more of a target in the neighborhood? Out of curiosity, like, do people do people go like, oh, I don't see you around here that much? Or, or like... No, I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I, I never had any problems like that. I yeah. Mean, like, 
But I was pretty rough when I was younger, so I, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think anybody... Well, then I want... Th- that's the other thing is I wonder if, like, oh, if people see that you're getting bust out and they're like, oh, hey, hey, bro, like, you have some talent, like, stay away from this shit. Like, do people look out for you in that way? When you have something, you do. Like, so, cause, so for me, like, you know, right around 13, I got super duper serious about saxophone. So, like, like I literally was practicing, like, eight, nine, ten hours a day. My mom thought was something was wrong with me. She said I was depressed or something. So, yeah. Like, but you were just shedding. Yeah, I was just shedding. Most of my friends, I mean, yeah, you had a couple people that was like, oh, what's up now? You can't kick it with us no more. Blah, blah, blah. But almost everyone else is just like, oh, that's dope. Kamasi's getting good at something. And yeah. like, people, that's what I said. It's like, it has this negative. People look at look at the neighborhood and they look at South Central and they look at like quote unquote the hood yeah. as being this bad place. But like I can tell you, like I mean, yeah, there's some bad there's some bad things about it. But like the other good, cool things, like once like my neighbors start found you know found out that I was in the jazz, all them old black men they couldn't wait to give me their Jazz Crusaders records and they you know what I mean they just couldn't it was, they were so excited yeah. that someone was doing something positive you know what I mean yeah. and the same thing like yeah it's a it's a community and it's a neighborhood and people root for each other yeah and the gangsters they see you walking with your horn it's like they're not they're, you know because you're not doing that so you you know they yeah they they give you a pass you know what I yeah. mean sorry so you're getting bust out that was the we were talking about the multi school oh, jazz band. oh yeah, so yeah. so Reggie Andrews he had the understanding that like you know these kids who grew up in the same neighborhood they need to know each other so he came he went out and he drove to everyone's school uh-huh. picked us up drove us all down the lock to rehearse then took us all home every night wow set up gigs for us he's the one that like like the first like the, the first time i met, met wayne shorter was because of you know the, the thelonious monk institute like people like barbara silly uh-huh. and reggie andrews you know and i was like I was, that was a, a milestone of my life i was like wayne shorter was the dude that changed my life and he, he was sitting right next to me at this gig that reggie set up for yeah. us you know and like you know he, he buys food he gave us money for our grades, which I came up because I had like straight A's. So like wow. great, great time came. Everybody was like, "Kamasi finna come up like hundred, two hundred dollars." Oh like, shit! <laughs> like Ronnie Ronald used to owe money. <laughs> That's so. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I used to envy kids that when their parents would pay for their grades, because I, I was always a straight A student. Like if I got a B, like I was in trouble. You know what I mean? And then I, and I would be like, "Damn, I wish." My parents were like yours, where they would pay me if I got B's. That would be amazing. Yeah, Reggie Andrews did that. Yeah. He paid us for our grades. That's great. And um, you know, so so it, it was you know, and he lived in the neighborhood, so it was, it was yeah. uh, there were people like that too. When you're going to Hamilton, what's the curriculum like? Is it pretty much? Are, are you doing? I would. I mean, obviously, you're doing more music than you would be at a normal school, but is it all music, or do you take? Hmm. Do you still do math and science? And no, stuff? yeah, you, you do everything. I mean, you basically would have three music classes. Okay. So you have three music classes, and then four other classes, and you can kind of choose which. Music classes, yeah. So I took, I had jazz band, I had wind ensemble, and I had electronic music. And you know, sometimes I take theory, sometimes I take orchestra. So it was it was really cool in that sense. You know, like Dan Taguchi was great. Like he he really got my reading together, and like you know, uh, Greg Robertson really introduced me to classical music and the concept of playing music in that way. You know, and that that gave me. You know, insight on on that level. You know, when you're a player of of your level and magnitude, like when, what is it that draws someone to jazz instead of classical? I mean, they're related in some ways, and I mean, I think I think someone who in classical music, you're you're expressing yourself, but you're expressing yourself through the words of someone else, right? Through the through the through the ideas of someone else. It's a lot of memorization and stuff. Yeah. Well, like, it's, just, or, it's more like it's like it's like the difference between. Um, being an actor and being a public speaker. Okay. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like if you when you're an actor, you're both 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 you're telling a story. Yeah. 
But uh, when you're an actor, you're telling a story to someone else. Yeah, I feel like someone's told me that before. Like uh, if you're uh, uh, or like oftentimes uh, prodigious classical musicians as children, they'll become like such a master of their craft and of their instrument. But they never go on to write their own music. Yeah, a yeah. lot of times right? because because you, you, I mean, one, you're 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 accustomed to playing the music of these incredibly brilliant, brilliant composers. So yeah. like, you know, there's there's a there's a there's a weight to the to the to the to the size mm-hmm. of a lot of classical music. You know, and jazz, you know, yeah, there's big ensembles, but there's also a lot of small ensembles. Mm-hmm. Duets, quartets. Mm. You know, if you're like a violin player and you're like everything you played is for like hundreds of people, you know, to to then try to jump into that takes a lot of uh, commitment. You know, mm. um, but what 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 would make someone you know draw into jazz or classical music? It's probably, I mean, in the end, in the end, it's, it's your upbringing. Mm. You know, I mean, like most people who play jazz or classical music as a kid is because. You had the opportunity to because some older person put you up on game, put you up on game, and pushed you into that. You know, and so you come from like a little enclave of jazz musicians, where like a lot of people, like a lot of names that listeners will have heard of. You grew up with him. Yeah. So Thundercat, you said you knew him before he was born. You you remember his mom being pregnant with him, essentially. Yeah. And his brother would just stop by. Like you guys grew up together. You've known each other since you were two. A lot of the musicians that you play with, you grew up playing with. Like yeah, you, it, all of them. Yeah. All of them. You know, Brandon Coleman went to elementary school with Ronald Stevens. He wasn't even playing piano back then. He yeah. was just a homie, you know what I mean? Yeah. And at 17, he decided he was going to play piano. And by 19, he was like the cat, like the most working is, you know, player yeah. in the city. Um, Do you ever take time to just like, like sit back and go, fuck, man, I'm like really lucky to have all these amazing people that are my friends. My friends aren't just good. They're my favorite musicians. And that's what I, that's what's so crazy to me. I was like, try, I was trying to talk about it earlier with you about how like it just seems like such a crazy outlier thing how like not only are these your closest friends but these are all like world-class musicians that you guys grew up i wouldn't trade one of them i wouldn't trade any of them for anyone you know what i mean yeah they're like they're they're my favorite they're exactly who i want and i I, i'm so thankful i'm like wow i mean most people have to scour the earth to find their ultimate band mine like that's what i'm saying it's and it's all in this little 10 mile radius of each other that you guys are or something that's so fucking crazy to me it's awesome yeah in hamilton are you already getting hired to like go on the road and do gigs and stuff like as a team Mm, i mean we were gigging around town you know a lot i mean i I didn't i hadn't gone on the road when i was in high school i think miles did um miles is who's playing the bass in the video if you guys are if you guys watch the video after this interview uh so when you graduate from high school like so when I graduated from high school, yeah. I went on my first tour with Snoop. That was my how, first. Yeah, Snoop. how does that happen? Terrace. Oh, okay. I met Terrace when I was thirteen. Wow. I remember Terrace was uh, making rap albums a couple of years ago, right? Oh yeah. Like touring with Merce and shit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get your gig with Snoop through Terrace, and how's that? How's going on the road? It was a. It was. It was. It was. It was. It was very um, educational. And, <laughs> and uneducational at the yeah. same time. I mean, um, making brain cells and killing brain cells. Yeah, you yeah. know, I learned a lot. I mean, it's it's. Um, I mean, socially, it was it was way out. You know, like if you never like had to, if you never lived in the lifestyle of a celebrity, it's kind of like. And I'm not. I don't mean like the, in the in the in the luxury of it. Just in the treatment, in the social treatment that you get. 
You know, it's like it, it, it's like just being in his orbit makes people look at you different or what? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just being in his orbit, you know, being a part of what he's doing. Yeah. And, and not so much in big cities like Los Angeles, but like you go, you go to some smaller cities and it's yeah. just like the sensationalism is like, wow, it's kind of all overwhelming. Um, right. But then musically, um, you know. What era like, of, of Snoop was this? Was this like Beautiful or something? Or? Yep. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a big song. It's a good song. Um, so then musically, there's a, there's another thing that happened. I mean, like, um, so up to that point, like I was at that point in my life, I was like super serious musician. Like, I, like I said, I was practicing eight ten hours a day. Right. You know, I was studying music. Like, my, my music was everything. I didn't I didn't really have too much of a life outside of music. You know, like me and Ronald Brunner, literally, if there was something happening musically in L. A., we were there. You know, Kenny Garrett coming to town. We were at his show. Seven out of you know seven out of six nights that he was there, you know, and like we didn't have money to pay for one of them. Right. <laughs> I don't even know how we did that, right. you know. I mean, literally, like we would go to the Catalinas broke and not pay, and watch every night, and then come back the next night and do the same thing. Anyways, right. so um, when I started playing with Snoop, you know, jazz is so wide and it's so deep and it's so vast that you can get lost in it and you can lose your sense of the details. Uh-huh. So when I started playing with Snoop, you know, we weren't playing a lot of really complicated stuff. But it's very precise, though. But it's unbe- it was unbelievably precise. And I realized that a lot of jazz musicians don't even, aren't even aware that you could look at music this precisely. Right. You know, you could look at things with these kind of subdivisions. Well, because hip-hop, uh, like, beats are a lot of a lot of the time about dead space and about things cutting off at the right time, right? Oh, yeah, and, yeah. and being played exactly in the same place. It's right. like being, being, you know, where part of the groove are you in? Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, it's really, it's it was, you know, so it had a profound effect when I started playing jazz because now when I play jazz, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing this wide expanse, but I'm also seeing this very... Very, 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 very detailed spectrum, and like, like when you hear uh, me and my, myself and Ryan Porter play together, it's weird. Like, we both have that understanding, and then sometimes people come and sit in with us, and they don't. And it, it like we both see, we look at each other like, oh, that's right. Yeah. Like most people don't understand. Like, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty sensitive to like where I play something. You know, like it's not just what I play, but it's like where I play it really matters to me because of playing with Snoop. Yeah. And Ryan's the same way. And so when we got back to playing with jazz musicians, like I would notice that, like, oh, people, you just play that, you play your stuff all over the place. It's almost like a a rhythmic or something. Yeah. I mean, mean, you have rhythm and you're playing on beat, but it's like, what part of the beat are you playing on? And it's haphazard for you. Like, you you don't even know, you're not even aware that you could be playing this. You know, in different places. Yeah, yeah so like, like could, there's different pockets. That yeah, you, that exactly. You, you know, it's interesting. I, I notice it, um, the difference between, like, people that uh, are, like, drummers that tor- do a lot of, like, hip-hop drumming versus, like, jazz drumming. If you try to put a purely jazz drummer into a hip-hop situation, I feel like they lay on the, the rides too much. And, like, they, they don't let they don't let the drums breathe. Or they don't have that kind of, like, you know, that, that like, precise kind of stop I, I don't know. You, you, you're talking about the subdivision. You're talking, you're talking about the groove. It's like, yeah, the groove. It's like you, you can hear the same thing in someone who plays like with James Brown. You listen to James Brown. You listen to the drummer. What's so great about them is that they they put the groove in the perfect place, right. and it stays there the whole song. Yeah. And, and it's like it's not. They don't necessarily verbalize it, mm-hmm. but they are 
100% aware of it. Yeah. So, like, you know, we'd be playing, duh, duh, and it's like, if we went, duh, duh, it, like, it, it, it sounded like kind of the same thing, yeah. but it was like, nah, you know, and they would look at you funny, like, you did something wrong. Yeah, and like, yeah. and before you realize, like, oh, you guys really, really, really hear where, what part of the beat you play on. So it, it doesn't matter if I'm playing this really simple line. Yeah. It's, it's first off, I have to I have to realize that it can be played in different parts of the beat, uh, and then I have to r- figure out how do I how do I know which part of the beat to play it in, and that's what you, then you have to go back and listen to music again right. with different ears, yeah. and then you start to learn like oh okay well depending on what this is going and that is going and this is going you should play it there, uh, and then it becomes intuitive after a while you don't even think about it but like. That was eye opening for me, yeah, you know, and it affected yeah. my affected me musically, you know. Were you one of the younger dudes on the road? Like, were a lot of the guys older road warriors in that you know, situation? Snoop had a band. He had the best jazz musicians in L.A. in his band. Really? At one point, he had myself, Ryan Porter, Isaac Smith, um, Joseph Lineberg, Terrence Martin, Thundercat, um, no um, Robert C. Wright Sput, the drummer from 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 Snarky Puppy, was playing keys. <laughs> Uh, RC plays with with uh, Erica Badu. Um, D Loke was playing drums. Marlon was playing guitar. I mean, yeah. Keon Harold, the great drummer player from from from, from St. Louis. Yeah. Um, and you guys are all just playing fucking Snoop Dogg karaoke. But sound check. But it's was precise a, though. I bet sound check yeah. was was, oh, was out like of was like yeah. It was like out of control. That's awesome. So when you get back from the road, you're like, uh, it's time for college or what? Um, I, I, mean, I, I was I was going on the road while I was in college. You know, oh, I'm yeah. a master at convincing a college professor that that you know me missing five weeks of your ten week quarter right. shouldn't affect my grade. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I got literally like one time I was on the road with Snoop and um, he used to like before anyone like pe- people didn't just ha- didn't, didn't just have laptops back then. You right. know, that was like right. you know you had to be like a really techie kind of guy to have oh, a yeah. laptop. Yeah. And so like you know I would be out sometimes and I was I was in school so like. A lot of places had like a like a business center. Yeah, in the hotel downstairs, you know. Yeah, email my my papers. I had to I could go downstairs, write a paper, and email, email it to my to my professor. Yeah, and then get your continental breakfast. So well, I was in this one place, and they didn't have yeah. a business center, but what they had was like you know they had the uh, Nintendo sixty four controller that connected to the TV, yeah. and you could go and you could write an email. But you had to do a key at a time. Yeah, to oh, use the yeah. Nintendo, and I wrote a whole four page paper. With the Nintendo 64, wow. like A, <laughs> S. It's like putting in the longest username for Metroid ever or something. Like, that's crazy. That's so crazy. That's interesting, man. Uh, I didn't even get an A on that paper. I thought that was, like, criminal. So you apply to Thornton and don't, and don't get in, but you get into USC for physics, but you pick UCLA. Yeah, and, and, I, and I ended up talking to, like, the head of the jazz department. And it, they, they told me it was, like, some kind of, like, mistake that they, they they didn't mean for that to happen really? <laughs> but i was just like oh whatever you know yeah. well at the time did it kind of did, do you feel like it maybe even lit more of a spark in your ass of like a little bit of competition or something no nah, i mean i was pretty confident where i was i mean i was pretty yeah, high up there right. on, like on you know I mean, musically i was like i've never had confidence issues like that like right. I, i'm not like arrogant but I, I, don't, I don't you don't need to let your dick swing because you already know you're doing it right like, yeah yeah so what uh what's ucla's program like so ucla i was still when i decided to go to ucla i still was kind of undecided you know i mean like i started off like undecided in that like you didn't know if music was going to be your, yeah really because i really love science i really love math you know and my, and my mom was into it and i was into it and I, like i was i was so into music 
that she had, she made a pretty interesting case that like, oh, you know, I mean, like you you already study music so much, like what is someone going to be able to teach you that you're not going to be able to learn on your own, mm. you know? But I'm glad I didn't, you know, because I mean, cause music, it, it demands so much of you. It's such a demanding endeavor that you can't really do something else yeah. at the same time. Do you still read a lot about physics and stuff then? Yeah, I mean, on, on a very, like, yeah. layman level. Right. Yeah, but, like, yeah, I, I, I'm interested. You're not, in, like, not trying to solve the theory of everything or anything. <laughs> no, no, but I'm aware of, like, what they're doing and stuff like that. And it's, it's super interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some of the studies that they're, that they're making, are, you know, the science is, is, is amazing. Yeah. But I realized that I wasn't, I didn't like the competitive nature of it, you know. So, when like, when science wasn't just fun, if everybody's happy, go lucky, it's not, and it's not like that. It's, it's a yeah. very competitive field, you know. Right. So, you know, so I got to UCLA and um, I actually learned a lot. You know, I was, I was an ethnomusicology slash composition major. And, you know, like my professors, were t- I was learning a lot. You know, actually, it was like I was being exposed to a lot of music that I hadn't ever heard before. And like being put in situations that, you know, forced me to, to expand my my vocabulary. And, you know, just, it, was really, it was really good for me, actually. It nice. was really, really good for me. At this point, a lot of guys you grew up with are going to UCLA too, or were they el- elsewhere? And you guys were just linking to like uh, you know shed together. And yeah, we kind of we kind of spread out a little bit. I mean, like Ryan Porter actually went to New York. Okay. Um, uh, Terrace and Ronald went to Cal Arts. Okay. Um, Cameron ended up coming to UCLA with me. Miles was at UCLA. Uh, Tony went to Cal Arts. Um. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, not a lot of us, but but at that point, you guys all stayed in contact always. Yeah, we stayed in contact, but, but we were also getting pulled in different gigs. Like at that point, Ronald was playing with Kenny Garrett, you okay. know. What I mean, and I was playing with Snoop. Like so it was kind of yeah. like, you know, Terrace was playing with Snoop, and you know, so Thundercat was playing with Suicide of Tendencies. Right, so I we remember that. All and Jay Davey. Pulled. Yeah, and Jay yeah. Davey. I, I, okay, so that kind of brings me to my question of like. When you guys all kind of click back up together to form this Voltron type thing of whatever it is, this jazz scene that you guys have created at this point, is that kind of after college where you guys realize, like, no, oh, was, now was, we've all learned our thing? No, like, I was doing the same thing. Because, anyway, I mean, it wasn't like I mean, people weren't on the road like that. You know what I mean? They'd be out for three or four weeks and then back home for three or four weeks. Right. So whenever we were home, we would immediately link back up uh-huh. and go play. We had, we, had, we, had a running, we had a running gig at, at this place called Fish Street Dicks. Okay, where's that at? Um, that's in the Murr Park. Okay. And that's actually how the how the band like the, my big band with the ten two drummers and is that the one right around the corner from from Chaos Network? Well, at Fish Street Dicks has moved around a little bit and throughout Lamert, like it used to be right next door to um, to Project Blowing. Yeah, because I, I I've walked into like a I've I like just accidentally walked into a jazz show when I was at Project Blowed a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was there when, when when we were doing it. It was actually further up the street, right over by uh, where the Jamaican restaurant is now. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but um. You know that band happened on accident. Like we were all friends, uh-huh. you know, known each other for years. So like we would just play with each other in different situations. So like um, pause. one night, <laughs> pause. Exactly. I, know, I, know, I gotta reword that. No, Hold on, rewind. <laughs> so we would all just perform with each other in different oh, situations. Wait. Did you just make it worse? I did. Anyways, you guys would play music together, and, and, and so so one day I called. Uh, I always forget which who I called and who's late, but I I, mean, I, mean, I think I called. Cameron, Miles, and Tony to come do a gig, and they all canceled on me. Uh-huh. And so then I called Brandon, um, Stephen, and and uh, Ronald, uh-huh. 
to come play with me. And then Miles, Steven is Thundercat. Ronald is his brother. So you got a, So now you've got a saxophonist, a bassist, and a drummer. Ryan was already going to be there. Um, what does Ryan play? Trombone. Okay, trombone. So I had I had I had my my bass player, piano player, and drummer flake on me. Okay. So I called a different bass player, piano player, and drummer. Uh-huh. And then when I get to the gig, they all showed up. So now you got doubles of everything. And yeah, so I so I was like, well, so everyone's like, well, what, 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 what should we do? And I was like, well, that sounds like the most jazz situation ever. Like you know, just the confusion of all you guys showing up late and this and that and the other and who's flaking and who's not. That sounds like some straight jazz shit. Oh yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so yeah, and then this, the real jazz shit is that like, I was like, well, this is all play together. Yeah, and. I wish I could say that I foresaw what was going to happen, but it's like it was it was like it was crazy that like all of us grew up together, but somehow like musically, especially in the rhythm section, each one of them developed strengths that were their counterparts' weaknesses. So like Brandon Coleman's strengths are Cameron's weaknesses. Yeah. Cameron's weaknesses are Brandon. I mean, Cameron's strengths are Brandon Coleman's weaknesses. So they can play together, but also pick up each other's slack. They play together perfectly, and it just makes them. It makes them play better. Yeah. Usually, when, when you do situations like that, like the, the rhythm section, kind of like, they kind of conflict because they're like they're both in each other's lane. Yeah. But in this situation, it was like they actually made each other sound better. Wow. And it was like the from the very first time we did it, yeah. it was like. We were all looked at each other like, how did that work yeah. that well? Yeah. And it was just like, that's how the band was created. When did the process of the epic start? Um, this December. Uh, well, well, I mean, it, it's been in my mind for a long time, but yeah. we started recording it. Uh, like I said before, um, I don't know if I told you that before or not, but <laughs> it we when Lotus hit me up to do a, to do a record. Uh, actually, yeah. Wait, before we get to the epic, uh, how how does how does these scenes start to intertwine? Like how how does Flying Lotus hit you up? Like how do you link with Gaslamp Killer? How does how does the low end then the brain feeder thing tie into the LA jazz scene? Well, um, ironically enough, and, and, and we didn't really connect at this point, but we, I met Lotus years and years and years ago when he was like 13 probably the same age as Steven I think at, yeah. at this point we did a John Coltrane festival a John, oh, yeah, John Coltrane competition and he was there cause he's related yeah and um I, I believe him and he and Steven stayed in contact mm-hmm. and oh, so for that long I think so I mean wow. I don't know I, I don't, I, that's something I, have to, I always watch to ask him I don't, I don't even know yeah. but um but that was your first encounter with him? Well, he started working with Steven, and Steven started working with him. So I, heard, I was hearing about that. You know Even I mean? in the teenage years? No, no, no. Oh, this no. is later. This is oh, way later. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way, I hadn't seen him in 10 years mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe even more. Um, and so I I knew Steven had been working with him, and it was like, you know, Steven would play me some stuff from here and there, here and again. Mm-hmm. And then um, I just randomly ran into him at a jam session. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we, you know. I was just talking about Steven and like, oh yeah, it's cool, man. It's cool to meet you, you know, about on both sides. And then um, we, that's when we got back in contact with one another. You know, he would come out to some shows that I would do. I would come to his shows and just, you know, it was just real casual. And then he asked me if I wanted to put a record out on Brain Feeder. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, what, what kind of record are you, are you looking for me to make? And he was like, whatever you want to make. 
and that was like very liberating for me. You yeah. know, it, it seems very subtle and it seems pretty obvious, yeah. but as a musician, it's like sometimes you 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 stifle yourself. And so, like him saying, "Whatever you want to do," is like, "Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do." And it's like, "Oh, I want to do something crazy, like like a fucking three hour album that has like four movements in it." Yeah, yeah. So, so, so then I hit up everybody in the band. So I was like, "Yo, man, I'm gonna need y'all for like three or four days to do this record for Brain Feeder." And everybody I hit up was like, yo, man, I need to record some stuff, too. And so I was like, well, why don't we just all, instead of me hiring you for four days, and then you're going to go hire me for four days, and we're going to spend a ton of money, why don't we just, you know, get the discount rate and, like, pull it all together. Pull it all together and rent a studio out for a month. That's what we did, December of 2011. We all canceled all of our gigs. We didn't take any other gigs. And we oh, all we did every day from 10 in the morning to 2 o'clock in the morning record, was record. Wow. And we, we, we came out with this staggering amount of music. It was like... How does that feel to put everything on hold for a month? It was, it was, it was stressful. Is it scary? It was a little scary. I mean, cause people get mad at you. Well, but also, like, I'm sure that weekly gigs are a big part of your revenue and your income and keeping a roof over your head, right? And, and not only are you not making any money, but you're spending money because you, you're renting the studio, so you're putting money in. You're not, yeah. and you're not, you're taking money out, but not putting any money in. Right. Um, but it but, felt amazing to work on music every day that like that you believed in. Yeah. I work on music every day anyway, and I play music every day anyway. But it was like it, we felt like we were like like I said we 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 were making so much music. Like we ended up with like 190 songs, like wow. like eight yeah. albums. How many and how many people are how many people are in there with you? Is it just a rotating circle of people? Yeah, well, it was eight of us that put in to do it, yeah. and then each. Each of us, you know, I mean, a lot of the music that we recorded was just those eight people. Yeah. But then, you know, each of us had, like, outside people. Like, I had Dwight Triple come in, of course, for me and Igmar. And Brandon had some, you know, he had, you know, Oscar and some different, different people to come to record with him as well. Yeah. So it was. It was It was like, and so every day it was like this journey, yeah. you know. And we, like, you know. So I came I came out of that with... with with like 45 songs. Yeah, I read something about that and then like you were having trouble boiling it down so you're kind of like, fuck it, let's just keep a bunch of it. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah I had this gray out dream that had the whole album on it and I was like... I don't want to get too technical uh, into like the recording process but I am curious, like some of the songs are so mind-bogglingly dense and, and there's so much sound going on. Like who engineers and like what's the process of like figuring out how to record that? Another blessing. Yeah. Tony Austin is my engineer. Uh-huh. The drummer. Oh, really? Yeah, like the gig on the fourth, you yeah. know, like we had a whole situation with the sound and Tony Austin just came and saved the day. Yeah. And at the further session, you know, he, he engineered everyone's record. Yeah. Not just mine, but all eight albums. He was like the engineer. Is it one of these things where like the first couple of days is trying to figure out how to get the sound that you want and then once it's dialed in, you're kind of just good? Well, we were we were working on sound the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Because like, you know, it was like an ever-changing thing. It, was, it wasn't like we were recording... All the music that we recorded was so different yeah. that it was it was constantly shifting. We were constantly moving things and yeah. putting th- putting this in this room today and that room to this tomorrow and using right. this mic on this today and that for that tomorrow and yeah, it was it's it was constantly process. yeah. It was, and then Kev mastered it, um, or who Kev, mastered it? Uh, well, so Benjamin Tierney ended up mixing it. Yeah, um, and then I took it to Stephen Markison to master it. Uh-huh. And then, well, actually, with Benjamin, we put it to tape. Uh-huh. And then I took it to Stephen Marcus and the master it. And then Kev 
mastered it for iTunes. Oh, for iTunes. So it was like I got I got mastered twice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, and, and and then the mixing process was a mug, man. Like yeah. me, like Benjamin Materni and I got to know each other really well. I was amazing. Like, mixing that must have just been so strenuous. It was. I was. I was so blessed. Like Benjamin, you know, I've known him for a long time from playing at uh, the Del Monte Speakeasy, and he was like, "Man, if you want to mix your record, let's do it." Yeah. And it was such a blessing because, like, you know, a lot of sound men like they have these preconceived notions of how things are going to be. Yeah. But Ben was just so wide open, you know, and he was just so down to, to let me come in there and, like, tell him, turn that up yeah. 0.3 dB. When you're in it, like, that makes a big difference. You know, what I, you know what I mean? Like, when you're really in it, it's like, hey, those 0.3 are fucking life or death. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, the mi- mixing is, is, is strenuous and tedious, but it's... And that's partly so why I think I had that, that... It was almost like a hallucination because I was listening to this music so intensely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it came out amazing, man. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're very busy right now, and you're doing a gazillion fucking interviews. I hope that you got some stories out that other people haven't gotten to hear while you were here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. And I really appreciate the performance. It was. It, I'll tell you, for those of you guys listening, like I do a lot of these. And, you know, sometimes we can rest on our laurels and, and the the performance part gets pretty comfortable and there's it's definitely there's a formula to it. And, and this time coming in, I was nervous. I thought you were intimidating looking dude just from pictures I've seen of you because has anybody you got a you got a mean looking face in pictures. And you're like the nicest motherfucker in person, you know what I mean? Like, and so I was like, oh god, I'm all worried. I hadn't talked to, I hadn't talked to you before we met today. I was only talking through managers, and then, and then all of a sudden, I get the call of like, oh yeah, he's gonna come with a bunch of musicians, and you, and like, do a video. And I was like, oh fuck. And then we're missing a bunch of mics here. But it, everything worked out so serendipitously because, and just getting to watch you guys do what you do in in a private setting like this was like such. It was just an amazing experience, and it was really an honor, and I'm and I'm so grateful that you guys did that. So thank you so much. And if people are in L.A., they can probably like just kind of catch you around because you guys play a lot in town, yeah? Yeah, we all over the place. Piano bar, yeah? Is this is this a place where you would suggest people just to kind of come catch you working things out? Yeah, working things out, hanging, you know what I mean? Where's the piano bar at? Selma and Wilcox. So there you go. If you're a local to L.A. and you guys, I, I'm telling you, if you, if uh, I was telling these guys earlier, if you were to take a girl to go see these guys do what they do, you're guaranteed going to get uh, a little bit of play that night. Cause <laughs> it's something that'll just make everybody smile. So um, I don't know. What's next, man? Are you going on tour? Are you taking it on the road? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what we're doing. We're routing the tour right now. How many people are you taking with you? Um, I'm trying to work out take eight. Yeah. Which is, you know, these days, in this day and age is difficult. That's a lot. It is. It's a lot. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure that any place that you hit, it's going to sound amazing. And you guys are, and if you guys are out there and you catch Kamasi in your town, be sure to go. Yeah, man. Congrats on everything that's happening. Where can the people find you online? They can find me at KamasiWashington.com. They can find me on Twitter at Kamasi Washington. They can find me on Instagram, Kamasi Washington. They can find me on Facebook. Kamasi. You got a name that you can Google. Your name, your name is easily Googleable. You got your parents gave you good natural SEO. Yeah, I'm uh, thinking I'm, I'm probably pretty much for sure the only Kamasi Washington. Yeah, Kamasi K A M A S I spelled just how you would think it is, and then Washington just like George Washington. Yeah, yeah, man. Thank you so much. I feel like it was a real honor to have you in here, and uh, I, I expect huge things. I feel like you're you're going to be a big jazz musician of our generation, so I appreciate it. Oh, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, man. Uh, my name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition. You can follow me on Twitter at It's Intuition. Follow my man behind the boards making the shit sound buttery, Ben Shim, at I Am Database, space with two S's. You can follow us as a unit at 
kind of neat facebook.com slash kind of neat youtube.com slash that's kind of neat where you're going to see our man kamasi and miles jam out on a stand-up bass and uh an amazing saxophone uh i, I mean you it was just off the top right yeah it was just they just went in and and caught the holy ghost and you guys are going to get to watch it so youtube.com slash that's kind of neat to watch that video and if you're listening on a computer you're doing it wrong get Get your phone, download the podcast app, subscribe to Kind of Neat, uh, and leave us a five-star comment and a review. And with that being said, I think that's all of my plugs. My name is Lee. This was Kamasi, and that was officially Kind of Neat. Oh, yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah. Yeah.